This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. Okay, good evening. My name is Susan Derwin, and I am the director of the Interdisciplinary Humanities Center. In partnership with the College of Letters and Science, the Humanities Center is hosting tonight's event, which is part of the Arthur N. Roop Great Debate Series. The series was inaugurated at UCSB in 2001, inspired by Arthur Roop's vision of providing a forum in which contemporary societal issues of national and international significance could be rigorously addressed through multiple perspectives and points of view. Debate is powerful not because it is an instrument for reconciling differences or unifying divergent opinions, but because its practice upholds a cornerstone of democracy, freedom of expression. We owe a debt of gratitude to Arthur Roop and his foundation for creating the possibility of engaging through debate the most learned minds of the day in order, as Arthur Roop himself has stated, quote, to grapple with the facts and create inspiring dialogue. Scrupulous attention to facts and engagement in informed dialogue model the skills of critical reflection and lucid communication that we as educators in a public university strive to cultivate in our students so that they can develop into informed, engaged citizens. So please join me now in recognizing Arthur Roop's vision and in acknowledging the president of the Arthur N. Roop Foundation, Mark C. Henry, who is here in the audience this evening for making this valuable series possible. Mark, where are you? There it is. Past debates have taken up topics ranging from the use of genetically modified organisms to feed the world, bias in the American news media, the state of academic freedom, to drone warfare, torture in the law, the war on terror, and the tension between the demands of national security and personal liberty. As you can see, many of these issues have emerged from the 16 years of war in which the United States has been engaged. This year's topic, Is ISIS an Existential Threat to the United States?, is no exception. The Islamic State in Iraq and Syria, the most powerful and effective uh, extreme jihadist group in the world, is also a product of the recent wars. And as I'm sure you know, ISIS has been in the news this week since it was revealed that President Trump gave high-level intelligence information about ISIS to Russia's foreign minister and U.S. ambassador. We are very fortunate to have with us this evening two scholars who have devoted themselves to studying global conflict and who will be able to inform us about the origins of ISIS, the danger it poses, and the possible ways of responding to its threat. Mark Gopin is a professor at George Mason University, where he directs the Center for World Religions, Diplomacy, and Conflict Resolution, and teaches in the School for Conflict Analysis and Resolution. 
He has worked throughout the Middle East and in Europe as an educator, activist, and peace-building strategist, and he has written extensively about the relationship between global trends in nonviolence and new approaches to global conflict resolution. In addition to having published five books, he has written for the International Herald Tribune, the Boston Globe, the Christian Science Monitor, the Times of London, and numerous other media outlets. Monica Duffy Toft recently joined the Fletcher School at Tufts University, where she is Professor of International Politics and Director of the Center for Strategic Studies. She has taught at Oxford and Harvard Universities, and she spent four years in the United States Army as a Russian linguist before she earned her undergraduate degree in political science and Slavic languages and literatures here at UC Santa Barbara. Her fields of research and teaching include international security, ethnic and religious violence, civil wars, the relationship between de demography and national security, and military and strategic planning. And she has published widely in these areas. And please be sure to read far more complete biographies of our debaters and our moderator, which are included in your program tonight. And our moderator tonight is Mark Jurgensmeyer, Professor of Global Studies and Sociology and Founding Director of UCSB's Global and International Studies Program and the Orphalia Center for Global and International Studies. Mark teaches and writes about religious violence, conflict resolution, and South Asian religion and politics, and he has published more than 200 articles and 20 books in these areas. And before I turn the proceedings over to Mark, just a word about our schedule this evening. Between the debate and our debaters' final statements, we will take, or the debaters will take, questions from the audience. So I would ask those of you who want to ask a question to please line up at the microphones located at the front of each aisle and make your questions succinct. Thank you, and enjoy the program. Well, thank you, Susan, and I think we're going to have a wonderful evening tonight. I'm looking forward to the conversation, and I'm sure all of you are. And I'm especially excited to have the two people with us that we have tonight. They're both old friends, but they're also extremely knowledgeable about the subject, about the area. They come at it from slightly different perspectives, but hey, that's part of the fun of it, isn't it, to try to see the conflation of ideas and the challenge of different ways of looking at a common problem. It's the particularly interesting to me because this is a subject that's also of great concern in my own research. Right now I'm working on a research project on how jihadi movements come to an end. And during the winter term, I had the, the term off, so I went to, uh, back to Iraq, to Kurdistan, and was able to go right on the border next to Mosul as refugees were fleeing from that troubled city. And I was able to talk with people who just a couple weeks ago were in ISIS-held territory, trying to understand through their eyes what it was like to be in an ISIS-controlled uh, uh, city. And they, they said it was like living in a prison. And when I asked one of them, is, is ISIS really about politics or is it about religion? And he thought for a little bit, and he said, well, if it's religion, it's a strange religion. It's not an Islam that we know. He said, it's all about it's all about power, and it's all about threatening, and it's all about killing. And then he looked at me, and he said, you know, all of those months that we were there, and we couldn't talk to anybody, we weren't, ha weren't allowed to have any kind of connection with the outside world, 
Secretly, we talked among ourselves and we asked, does anybody care? Does the rest of the world know what we're going through? Does the rest of the world, are they trying to do something to liberate us from this situation? Does the world care? And that, in a way, is the subject of our conversation. Does the world care? Do we care, as Americans, what happens in that region of the world? Does it make a difference to us? Is it an existential threat to the United States, we as a people, we as a democracy, we as a, for the security of our country? Is it a threat to the region? Is it a threat to anyone other than the people who are immediately affected by this terrorist movement? Who is ISIS a threat to? And how do we deal with it? This is the question that I want to pose to my two friends. And I'm, let me say a word about our format. I'm going to ask each of them to come up and say a few words in kind of an opening comment in response to that basic question of whether ISIS is an existential threat to us, and in, so in what way. And then we're just going to sit down and talk. Uh, because I think the most, the value of getting into these issues is not in kind of posing one side and then another side. Yeah, it, it, it is a debate in the sense that there are, are different ways of looking at it. But we've decided that the best way to present this, there are differences and also our ideas, in a, is in a conversational format. That's why we have a, a coffee table and comfortable chairs and a setting where we think is conducive to intelligent conversation for which you are all partners and I hope that a little bit later in the evening you will enter in with your own questions as well. So my colleagues, and I'll ask you first, Monica, how do you respond to that plaintive question of that villager in Mosul? Does anybody care, and should we? So good evening. Uh, it's really wonderful to be back here, and I would like to thank the Arthur Roop Foundation for hosting this and also the College and Letters of Sciences and the Interdisciplinary Humanities Center for uh, bringing Mark and me together to discuss this. I haven't been on campus for 15 years. I cannot believe I graduated 27 years ago uh, in 1990, and the campus has changed dramatically, and I must say for the good. But I, I have to say, while I was here, I got an incredible education. Uh, an ed education after four years in the U.S. Army, there were not a lot of veterans on campus. In a sad sort of way, there are a lot more on campus because of the wars that we've been fighting for the last couple of decades. Um, but I will say I felt very welcomed and I was fortunate to be here. Uh, and it set me up for graduate school at the University of Chicago, where then I became a professor at Harvard University. Then I moved to the University of Oxford, and now I'm back at Tufts University at the Fletcher School, standing up a center for strategic studies around these issues that we're debating tonight. But in particular, I'd like to thank two former faculty advisors, Thomas Schrock, who is now retired, and Paige Degeser, without whom I would not be standing here tonight. They inspired me to become an academic, and sometimes I, um, I talk to them and I say, why did you do that? Um, uh, because being an academic, for any academic who knows, is, it's a tough job. But really, thank you, because without you, I'd not, I would not be standing here today. Uh, so, but on to the question at hand, and you know, Marx posed a, a different one, which is, do we care? And of course we care. We wouldn't be here, and we wouldn't be standing here discussing this. 
but the question we were asked to debate more specifically is, is ISIS an existential threat to the United States? And in, sitting in the audience, if you're typical of the American audience uh, that gets polled regularly by uh, Pew and others, uh, last year a poll was done, and 83% of respondents, these are all Americans, believed that ISIS posed a serious threat to the existence and or the survival of the United States. 83% which explains why it's front and center and it's constantly in the news and on the front pages of our newspapers. Uh, but if you think about it and you break down what an existential threat is, um, I would contend that it's not an existential threat. An existential threat would be a situation in which the continued existence of our nation, both our government and our people, were in grave and serious danger. More specifically, I would say a, uh, such a threat would undermine the sovereignty of the United States as outlined in our Constitution, which is, you know, several hundred years old. It would threaten the territorial integrity of the United States. Third, it would compromise the safety of our citizens within our borders. And lastly, it would pose a serious challenge to U.S. vital interests abroad, such that it would compel changes in how we live our lives here today, changes to our laws, our regulations. So I would contend if we accept this definition that ISIS is not an existential threat, our sovereignty, our homeland, and our citizenry are not seriously threatened. Yes, we've had terrorist attacks, some inspired by ISIS, but we're a resilient nation. We succumbed to 9-11 uh, with al-Qaeda. ISIS is an offshoot of it. Um, and even more damaging was World War II and um, Pearl Harbor and the, the complete destruction of our Pacific fleet. Yet we managed to pull it together and fight what was even more of a threat in Nazi Germany and then, of course, Japan. We are more likely, uh, we as individuals in the United States, to die from heat stroke or to choke than we are to suffer a terrorist threat. Today, you know, there was an incident in New York, and we all thought it was a terrorist, you know, driving a car, hitting pedestrians. I lived in the U.K. for three, year, three years. We just had that horrific incident, an inspired one, where a man drove a car, and then he pulled out and killed pedestrians, uh, and then pulled out a knife and killed others with a knife. It turns out he was a drunk driver, much more common uh, threat. So, again, this is not to say that ISIS is not a threat. It's a serious threat, but it's not an existential one. However, even saying that, what I'd, I'd like to extend it a little bit, wherever I, on that fourth point, our vital interests might be threatened, here is where I think ISIS might become an existential threat. So what is ISIS? ISIS is a state, it's now a declared state, it's declared the caliphate, and it's premised on a fundamentally religiously inspired ideas that go back centuries and adopted sort of along the lines of Salafism or the idea of going back to pious forefathers, uh, back to an age, a fundamental age about how the prophet and his, his successors lived. It's transnational religious political ideology, and it's based in the physical jihadism, the idea that we should go out and be proactive and impose these sort of views on other people and the return to what they believe is the true Islam. Even though there's supposedly 73 variants, one of them is supposed to emerge, and this is the one that's supposed to be the true and vital Islam. But the problem is the ideas underpinning this, as we know, uh, are anathema to our ideas of liberty, human rights, and equality among men and women. So the critical question, and how I think um, it might become an existential threat, even though it is not now, is how we will respond to such ideas, how we will respond to the risks and threats that ISIS knows how to prey upon. 
Will we push back on this war of ideas by abrogating our own beliefs, beliefs that have undermined our political system and regulated our social relations? Will women go back into the kitchen and have only a private life rather than a public life? One need only consider how civil liberties might be and have been threatened in the fight against Islamic jihadism, most recently with the Muslim ban, which was targeting whole groups of people uh, and, not and, and, and not sort of respecting individual liberties, freedom of religion, and what goes with that. And empirically, we know as scholars and, and, and actually the, the justices who overturned it, uh, we know there have not been instances of attacks from people coming from the countries that were part of that Muslim ban. The problem then is not with the enemy, it is with ourselves. ISIS could become an existential threat if we allow it to it. It knows how to play on threat perceptions, it's a master of social media, and it knows about our aversion to risk. We don't like to see suffering and die, and we are we still very Habesian, we, we fear death. So its social strategy is very, very, its social media strategy is very sophisticated. Um, and as is its portraying in the lust and effectiveness and love of violence, which seems to be appealing to young men and to some young women around the world, this barbaric level of violence. Again, it's not to say overall that it's not a serious threat or that it's not an existential threat to Muslims and those directly in harm's way in the Middle East, in the region, and, and in particular, of course, in Syria and Iraq and now moving into Turkey and to some extent into Europe. Uh, but to the U.S., it is not. We are surrounded by, as my former advisor John Mearsheimer said, John Mearsheimer at the University of Chicago, two moats. We are an incredibly strong and safe country. So ISIS is not an existential threat in material terms. As pointed out six years ago by David Kilcullen in The Accidental Gorilla, the real threat is, a, is overreaction and fear, abridging or suspending civil liberties, due process of law, and this giving rise to bigotry, racism, and theocentrism. And it follows what makes ISIS dangerous is its ability to exploit its targets over sensibility to risk and loss. And that's how it becomes dangerous to the United States and its Western allies. And regionally, ISIS's main threat is its aggravation of the Sunni Shia Arab Persian uh, cleavages. And this, again, is an ideational environment. It's whose ideas are going to triumph it. Does it matter whether you're a Sunni or a Shia, a Persian or an Arab or a Turkmen? And we can think about the 30 Years' War and the horrific um, uh, violence that Europe witnessed as a result of that, uh, one in 10 Europeans dying, where the idea was that any compromise equaled defeat and damnation. And there, we do not want to succumb to that. So my answer, Mark, is no. I don't think it's an existential threat to the United States. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. I've never been to Santa Barbara before. I, uh, I tell my West Coast, my East Coast friends, I'm a lifelong East Coaster, and uh, they ask me where I am. I say I'm in heaven. Uh, every time there's too much heaven in the West Coast uh, of North America, not enough the rest in the rest of the country. Um, but in any case, I'm, it's it's wonderful to be here with Professor uh, Jürgens Meyer, uh, who I admired from the distance for many years, and I, I appreciate so much. 
the, uh, uh, the foundation and all the others. So, uh, so let's get into it. Um, I, uh, I come from a, a rather unusual perspective in the sense that I've been on the ground for 15 years uh, working inside Syria uh, in addition to being a professor full time. And I have students on all sides of the war. This matters to me very deeply. Uh, Father Paolo, a wonderful Catholic priest who was such a courageous and loving man, was captured early on by ISIS when he offered to go and be a mediator, and they, they, they immediately captured him, and we've never seen him again. He's probably one of the thousands and thousands that were killed in Sednaya, uh, their bodies burned, in the crematoria that we now know exists in Syria. This is a very, very real and tragic genocide civil war, and uh, we do care. And there are thousands of people who have tried so hard to work with Syrians and with Syrian refugees. To this day, I work with Syrian survivors, uh, with women and children in particular, but also with, with young men whose whole cities were devastated and have gone back in to fight uh, with ISIS. I can tell you that there is a great deal that has been frustrating about working in, for 32 years in the Middle East in my, in my particular position in terms of religion and peace building. And that is that after 30 years of work, I started to come to the conclusion about 10 years ago that what looks like religious violence turns out to be secular violence. And what looks like a religious organization turns out to be a secular one. And I, and I came to that conclusion and I started to understand and dug deeply inside Afghanistan with my Afghan partners and friends and students. Everywhere I went, I found states to be actually responsible for the extremism that is rocking the entire Middle East and that is an existential threat to the future of the planet, but for, surviving, for, for surprising reasons. And that is that it's distracting us and obsessing us with military weapon sales and with oil sales that are actually killing the planet. And if there isn't an existential threat to the United States, there is an existential threat in the sense that within 20, 40, 50 years, the major cities on both coasts may be underwater. And we will not be the same civilization if we survive. And most rational people know this around the world, except that this Middle Eastern conflict and this continual pitting of Sunni and Shia against each other with proxies through Saudi and Iran on on either side, and Russia and the United States on either side, is distracting civilization from the rational approach to our collective survival. And that is an existential threat. I agree with... And that means that, means that one has to have a rational approach to what is an existential threat. And that is that, of course, uh, there is... Um, it, we understand, and this is where Monarch and I agree completely, um, it, the human mind is very conditioned to be aware of who wants to kill you. I mean, we have millions of years of evolution, fight and flight. It's very reasonable for Christians and Jews and secular and gay and others to look at what's happening in the Middle East with a group like ISIS and say, my God, they want to kill me. And that's true. But it's also true that half a million people die every year because the smoking industry is taking advantage of you. Okay? There's, there, there are major threats from, from so many different kinds of abuse in a systemic way that are far more existential for most of us. So it is not that ISIS is not a threat. 
It is not that it's not good that the world in many nations are trying to contain them and eliminate them. It's that we're not looking at the true threat. The true threat is that since Eisenhower, since the beginning of the Cold War, religion was militarized as a form and weaponized as a form of anti-communism. And this devastated the region, and it has devastated Sunni Islamic civilization since the United States and the West started investing in very problematic regimes. Regimes that to this day are, are recruiting tens of thousands of clerics in places as far flung as Indonesia. And now there's an Indonesian Christian minister of state in jail because of the level of extremism in this great Islamic democracy that wasn't there before because of Wahhabi funding from the Middle East, from American allies, from the chief recipients of American military hardware, Saudi Arabia. And that is a problem for the existence of the region, for the existence of global civility, and for the development of a collective approach to climate and to our sustainability as a planet. It's also an existential threat to the Islamic civilization itself, which has a great and noble history and that has been the basis of great enlightenment in the past, but has now been victimized by one very peculiar form of extremist religion that is being propagated with billions of dollars across the world in, by one particular country or two in the, in the Gulf. So it is vital for the United States' flourishing future and survival to choose its allies more wisely and to have a balanced approach to the problem between Iran's empire in the Middle East and the Saudi empire in the Middle East. My Syrian friends were so committed to a future Syria that was democratic and foreign fighters came in by the thousands through Turkey with the full agreement of that regime to use the most extremist fighters to kill my friends because they were democratic opposition. I sat with generals from Assad's army who defected and they're sitting there crying because everyone was killing them. American allies sending their fighters into Syria by the thousands to kill the Democrats and to kill Assad. But imagine being a Democrat in Syria, Islamic, secular, religious, woman, man, sometimes Sunni, sometimes uh, Alawite, sometimes Kurdish, and you are trying with your friends to create a cosmopolitan society of religious and secular together, and everyone is against you because the West still has to develop a better understanding and interest in Middle Eastern civilization that has a balanced approach to who they support. It is absolutely vital for the future for the United States to develop a different and better relationship with its allies and with its enemies, with Iran and with Saudi, and to force peace processes that will prevent Saudi, Iran, and Russia from dividing Lebanon into a civil war, dividing Iraq into a permanent civil war, dividing Syria into a permanent civil war, dividing Yemen into a permanent civil war. 
All of these civil wars are, are traceable to the same lack of sophisticated resolution of conflict between the major powers of the world. It is not religion. That is not the threat. The threat is that we are still primitive about how to deal with enemies and allies in the march towards a more sophisticated and more peaceful planet. So that is what I recommend for the future. That is what I think is the existential threat. Thank you. So if I heard you correctly, Mark, you said that the some ways the existential threat is the politicization of religion, which is a threat to civilization around the world, uh, and not just ISIS. Uh, Monica, did you hear anything that you want to respond to because uh, before we get into a more general discussion? Sure. I mean, I, thanks, Mark. Those are great comments. Um, I guess what I'd say is you put a lot of the onus and the burden on the United States and its selection of allies. But, you know, this has been a long-simmering uh, conversation that's been happening within the Islamic world. I mean, you can go back to Ibn Tamiyyah. You can go back to Qutub, right? And there was a lot of within domestic politics within these states uh, looking at the secular corrupt regimes and trying to come up with an alternative. Um, and the idea of sort of going... And, you, and we can go back to Afghanistan. We can go to Iraq. We can go... Um, to Syria. I mean, and, and so I wouldn't put the full onus of this on the United States and Western powers. Uh, there's also a big debate that the Islamic community, the Muslim community, and I would hope moderates with them can help to resolve about what is the proper role of religion within these societies and then across societies. Uh, and that debate is still continuing. Um, and, and ISIS is just sort of the apotheosis of this uh, and drawing on ideas that have been, you know, rustling around. And, you know, Qutub wrote in the 60s, uh, and he sort of made it an obligation for fellow Muslims to go and help for the fellow Muslims in lands that were occupied by non-Muslims and apostates and infidels. So I, I agree with Mark on a lot. In fact, you know, later if we get into the conversation about what, where did ISIS emerge from, um, you know, it was both, I think, Western intervention and, and engagement in the, in the region and just you know, sort of wreaking havoc for its own, but also within the Muslim world, the Islamic community, is trying to figure out what is the proper role of religion, because in some ways religion can be a force for good. Uh, you do have some moderate um, uh, imams and, and, and um, uh, religious leaders trying to work through religious lenses to try to have reconciliation and forgiveness, uh, but right now we're at a very, very bad point in terms of the where Islam is and how it's being interpreted by this particular very small group that's having a big impact. Well, this is exactly the direction I'd like to go because um, in order to understand how to deal with ISIS, you have to understand where it came from. And just now, you, you pointed out the kind of radical roots of a certain kind of uh, politicized Islam that goes back to Qutub in Egypt and Hassan al-Banna in Egypt and Madhuri in Pakistan. But on the other hand, if you listen to the, the last campaign, Everybody said it was an American president, although he disagreed about which president it was. The Democrats said it was Bush because, you know, the whole upsetting of the apple cart in Iraq is what led to the destabilization that uh, led to the sense of Sunni disempowerment, the feeling left out with the Shias coming into control, and, and that's the reason why ISIS developed. But then you heard from the Republican side that it was really Obama because in 2011 when the American troops came out of uh, Iraq, they should have stayed in order to protect the Sunnis. Now, which was it? Mark? 
The politicization of this in American politics, uh, I, have, I have very definite opinions about American politics, but in this case, both sides were right. They both were at fault. It was uh, a massive fault, ma massive mistake to, I mean, we, we're going back 30 years in terms of revenge for the disastrous uh, revolution of 1979 in Iran. And after that, Iran was enemy number one for the United States. But the United States did things with the Iraqis and with Saddam that were unspeakable. I have friends from, from the State Department who have confessed seeing the plans where they helped target with chemical weapons the Iranian people. A million people died in that war between Iraq and Iran that the world does not know about. There were massive mistakes that made this an inveterate and a very secular mistake. Saddam's generals were trained by the West. And we now know that ISIS, nobody's understood how ISIS so quickly controlled such a vast amount of territory, so much so that the Saudis were terrified that they would overrun Saudi at any minute. Because frankly, their troops, ISIS troops, were more committed to ISIS than Saudi troops are committed to Saudi. Now, there's a lot of reasons to look at that disastrous uh, dis uh, destruction of Iraq. And, and, and ways in which it was destroyed without an intent to rebuild that we can trace to, the, to this disastrous plans of Rumsfeld-Cheney at the time. But it's also the case that physically speaking, Obama pulled out uh, a lot of troops at exactly the time when the Sunni control was unsustainable. And therefore, it, it, it created this massive vacuum for ISIS to take over. But ISIS, in fact, Ha, is ex-generals and ex-special forces from Saddam's period. Well, should Iraq have stayed Japan. under U.S. occupation? Is that what you're suggesting? No. But I'm suggesting that, that the, um, it's simply in terms of the blame not being, being bipartisan. But as far as what to do next, that's, that should have been a very serious effort to create a Sunni-Shia constitutional process for equal and shared empowerment in the country of Iraq. Once it had been destroyed and taken away from a dictator, that should have been the process, and that's not what happened. So, Monica, what role really did the U.S. play? Was the U.S. play a critical role in the creation of ISIS? I think it did. I mean, if you think about what happened, you know, going in in 2003, it was a war of choice. Um, we did actually, Mark, we didn't really have a choice but to leave. I mean, Iraq, with the status of forces agreement, the Iraqis, we had to leave based on the status of forces agreement. We tried to renegotiate it. We understood that once we left and didn't leave troops in place and that Maliki was probably going to have uh, the Shias be dominant. We already saw they were taking over the Ministry of Defense and the Ministry of Interior. The army was a little bit better shaped than the interior, and they were going to go after the Sunnis. Uh, we, we understood that. Um, so I do think we are to blame uh, going in in 2003 um, and sort of up upsetting the regional balance of power. And they were warned about this, right, that Iran was keeping an eye on this. It was, it was Iran's opportunity. Fareed Sakaria talks about the sectarian rebalancing that resulted as a, as a consequence of that war. Uh, the first Bush administration understood that. They understood perfectly well, keep the strong man in place. Yes, 
He is not a good guy, but at least there was certainty. He was balancing the regional forces and the, uh, the Iranians, the Saudis, and others. Uh, but it was really that upset the entire apple cart. George and Bush the senior, wrote in his biography, uh, autobiography that he, he was afraid to let the troops go further into Baghdad because it would destabilize the whole region, and then mm-hmm. we would be responsible for it. We would have to deal well, with it. Well, what is Schwarzkopf, General Schwarzkopf, saying, you mm-hmm. break it, you own it. And so mm-hmm. they decided they didn't want to break it completely. They got mm-hmm. them out of Kuwait, uh, and, then, and then we pulled back. But uh, George Bush, you know, uh, Jr., decided that, no, this was a good gamble. They were going to rework. They had this idea that they were going to rework. Initially, it was weapons, uh, that he had uh, nuclear weapons and, 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 and yellow cake and all of that, and Colin Powell going uh, before the UN. Uh, but then they changed their tune and, and decided that, no, they're going to need a democracy in Iraq. And that's when you had the left and liberals actually coming over and supporting, going in and overturning the government in Iraq. And, and as we saw, now ISIS is a, a direct remnant of that because then when we pulled well, back... Let me try to understand how strong yeah. a case you're making. I mean, after all, there are radical Muslim groups throughout the Middle East and Egypt mm-hmm. and places where the U.S. has not invaded and occupied. Are you saying that if it were not for the invasion and occupation of Iraq, there would never have been an ISIS? There would never have been any kind of radical movements? There in, may not have been, because what ended up happening is we left a political vacuum there. And so it left an area in which they could actually grow and develop. And the big difference between ISIS and al-Qaeda, one of the critical differences, is the status of the caliphate. Al-Qaeda never bothered to declare a caliphate. They thought they needed to wait. We're not in end times yet. ISIS does believe, as an organization, that we're in end times, and they're trying to bring it on. They do want the West to come in, fight it to beak, and bring on uh, sort of the end time. And, and they're, you know, talk about climate change, Mark. You know, they're waiting. They think that what we're witnessing today in terms of droughts, one third of the world is going into drought. They're looking for the signs. And then next year, two thirds of the world's going to go into drought. And so there is a very deep theological basis to this, it was there, they split off, they had their, the territory in which to split off, uh, the, then the civil war happens in Syria, again, political vacuum, uh, and they went in there, and then they were able to sort of get re- more recruits and fighters, and talk about Western intervention, they were committed to overturning the Sykes-Picot agreement, and sort of state borders, in order to have this transnational caliphate without concrete borders. But Mark Open, Monica is making it sound as if the theological apocalypticism of at least an inner circle of ISIS is really the motivating uh, thing behind the movement. And I thought just a minute ago you said that it was primarily a political movement. It was not really religious. Uh, so the key with these movements is is that they, they have, they, they co-opt enough of religion in order to create massive numbers of recruits. But the real reason why people are recruited is because So you think the religious part is simply a shell? It's they're, not they're, they're paid better. There are people, I was with my Syrian friends at the beginning of the revolution, and people were switching to the, Syri- to the ISIS flag because they were paid three times as much. Okay, and, and that's the, the amount of wealth that has gone into their brilliant way of using oil, their cooperation with Erdogan to get that oil out and make a, a billions of dollars for, for, for the Turkish family as well. All of this colluded to create an incredibly wealthy organization. Saddam's special forces systematically executed. I have friends who were hiding, who were generals in Saddam's army, and they were being hunted by Saddam's special forces inside ISIS because they know who they really were. 
I believe that this is a secular land grab and that it got popular Sunni support because the West had abandoned those Sunnis to Muqtad al-Sadr and the Shia. And that was a mistake. It was a deep tactical mistake that was a combination of, of, uh, of uh, this neoconservative arrogance about redoing Iraq and then a more liberal leaving of Iraq. So that both combine to be the end of the Sunni and then ISIS is their alternative. But I don't think it's an alternative for religious reasons. I think it's an alternative for defense. Most of what you see, even when you go to Hamas, when you go to many radical organizations, most of their support is because people see them as their only defenders. And we need to change that in a very secular way in order for them to not go with extremist ideology. The ideology is almost a byproduct that is a galvanizing force in history. We have the same problem in Judaism, Christianity, Buddhism. When you don't have a legitimate way to suppress people, you use religious extremism. But it is usually not the core of the basic human needs that are being met. So, Monica, is it a byproduct or is it a main motivation? No, I think it's. I think for ISIS and I think for Al Qaeda, it's a main motivation. I mean, I think it helped them. You know, they started redefining Salafism, Wabins. They tried to do it in Saudi Arabia. They got kicked out. Uh, then they go to Af- actually. Then they went to Sudan. Got kicked out. Went to Afghanistan. Stayed there. Fought with the the Taliban got kicked out of there, and now they're in Iraq and into Syria. And that religious component is really important. Why are they in and around that area? Because that's the the, the heartland of... Um, of, of the Islamic tradition. That's where it was born. And the declaring of the caliphate provided a focal point, Tom Schelling's work, right? Uh, the idea that now people had a place, the homeland, they could come home. We are defending Islam. This is where you need to go. And Mark's right. It helped that they had the money and the resources to pay these people. Living in the UK, about 850 men and women left from the UK to go there, many of whom were looking for something bigger in life, something to be uh, a part of that was beyond just sort of the mundane of, 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 of everyday living, uh, and left. And so, yes, many of them were ignorant, but they had enough basic about, I'm a fellow Muslim, Muslims are in trouble, uh, here is a state that's going to help to defend uh, my fellow Muslims, and I can be part of that. And I think that we don't want to lose sight of that. I think the religious component is important. Yes, it's been perverted. Uh, but why? If, if, if Islam didn't matter, if components of it, then why is it happening right there at the focal point of the birthplace? And they do, you know bring in the Quran and the Hadiths a lot uh, to justify and to explain what they're doing. And there is some consistency across what they're trying to do. And of course, you can find other passages uh, that contradict it. You're not supposed to target civilians, non-combatants, and that kind of thing. Uh, but then there are other passages that say, no, actually, you, you can do it under certain conditions. The, the bottom line is that 20 million young people died in Europe in World War I all of them dying for God and country, all of them blessed by a priest before they got killed. But the states that were doing that had no interest in Jesus Christ. They were interested in conquering territory, particularly with lower class people being the cannon fodder. So it is not that different. We're, we're, we, we mystify this region because uh, for Westerners, it's foreign, it's different. But this has happened time and again in history that the foot soldiers die for religion, but the people making the decisions are, 
are doing this for other reasons, for other tactical purposes. Yeah, and, yeah. No, and I would, I would agree with that, that you want to look at why are individuals going and willing to put themselves in harm's way. More than half of the foreign fighters are dead. We think there's between 30 and 40,000 that went uh, over the last couple of years. They're dead because they were put in suicide missions. They willingly went. They believed that they were fighting for something higher all than over themselves. The world. All over the world. Most of them for the Middle East. Tunisia is the number one. Belgium per capita, right? Um, but you do want to look at the organizations. Uh, and, and, and there is sort of a fight going on between Al-Qaeda for recruits yes. and ISIS for recruits. And don't count Al-Qaeda. Tonight we're talking about ISIS. Yes. But Al-Qaeda is still sitting there. It's still well organized. It still has its, its you know, Al-Qaeda Inc. Um, and uh, is a much more patient organization. Um, right now, ISIS is just in the news. So I agree with you on that, Mark, that they're trying, they're vying for power, but there is a religious component to it. And religion is what helps to differentiate them. But now you're bringing in a whole other dimension, because it seems to me as I'm listening to you, you're talking about at least three different kinds of ISIS. You're talking about the ISIS of the inner apocalyptic circle of the leadership and whatever kind of power trips they're on and their conquest and their desire to create a state. You're talking about the masses of Sunnis who just want better money and they want an opportunity to be recognized and to have a role in, in government. And then you're talking about this transnational network of young people who are radicalized online and they're kind of looking at the Twitter accounts and, and, and Telegram and on the deep web at Tor and they're communicating and they're thinking, wow, this is rad, man. I can join this great thing. I can be in a war. And that's a whole different dimensions. It's like there are three different ISISs, right? And so each one of them may have a different set of factors that motivate them. Is that possible? Oh, absolutely. I mean, people have different motivations for why they join an organization. And there is no, one of the interesting things that's come out of the research that's been working on terrorism is there's no one profile for why people are joining these sorts of organizations. It's a mixed situation. But it turns out that, it, so in the Middle East, it's largely poverty and lack of unemployment and opportunities and or no choice uh, for why you join ISIS. But coming out of the, the Western part, so sort of um, out of Western Europe and the United States, it tends to be, you know, wealthier people who have the capacity, the time to think about these issues and sit online and read uh, and, and look at these videos, which are very well done. I mean, they're commercials, basically, of thuggish young men with, you know, uh, weapons walking along riverbeds, and, and it's, it's like a gang. You're going to be joining a family, and it's very attractive to some of these uh, uh, men who are lost uh, in their home countries. And so for them, it's a and different women. kind so of women cult. And women also attracted and some women. to be a part of a great struggle. They're a great mm -hmm. struggle, and then they end mm -hmm. up becoming wives yeah. and pass between. Briefly. Uh, <laughs> no, that's <laughs> right, and given birth control because they yeah. don't want to have to worry about supporting children down yeah. the road because it's, it's resource intensive. So, um, so indeed, there's multiple motivations for why different, even within the same individual, they might have competing reasons for why they, they might want to go. But now you're bringing up a whole new arena that we haven't discussed yet, and that is who is impacted by ISIS? Who is affected by ISIS? And obviously, Syria is affected, Iraq is affected. But what about their immediate neighbors? Is Iran kind of an innocent bystander, or does it have an existential, is it an existential threat to Iran in some way? Uh, what about Saudi Arabia? So far, they haven't been very active, but they should be. Jordan, what about Israel? What is, what is Israel's position? And Russia, of course. What about the in, in Turkey? We haven't even talked about Turkey and the role that it plays in the region. I mean, this is obviously a fight within these two countries. 
but there, it seems to me that you have a whole bunch of interested parties within the neighborhood who are also affected. Are, aren't they also in some way touched by and affected by and have a sense of an existential threat from ISIS? Are, all, are they different? Are these different approaches? Any, any uh, regime in the, in the Islamic world that is uh, not working proactively towards a more empowering inclusion of the population is vulnerable to ISIS. So these kingdoms are very vulnerable, some more vulnerable than others. I mean, Saudi clearly now sees that this is a threat to them, but it's a kind of strange thing because there's a, a number of well, What members, are they doing about it? There's a number of members of the royal family that are still funding mm -hmm. and still involved with extremist groups. Mm -hmm. So there's, there's, a, there's there, it's a very secretive society, but Saudi is far more divided along uh, civil war lines than people realize between some major families. So there's a very, and, and, and people don't realize that Bahrain is run by a Sunni family, but it's a Shia population. That Saudi Arabia is sitting, the oil in Saudi Arabia is in regions that are Shia populated, mm -hmm. even, and, and they are repressed and they are poor. So it's mm -hmm. a powder keg. Mm -hmm. as long as there isn't a more enlightened approach to Sunni-Shia relationships in the region. And that will not happen through Wahhabism, and ISIS is capitalizing on that. So they're afraid to fight ISIS because they are afraid that it will come to they, Saudi Arabia. They, they are fighting ISIS, they are. But, they are, but they have a very backward approach to their relationship to Iran, for example, and to Shiites in general. And instead of seeing the strength that would come from inclusivity, they are allowing the world to militarize the situation and to give massive weapons that are very profitable that continue a militarized approach to this problem. And it doesn't have a military solution. It has a solution that, that this region has to go through the same kind of evolution that Europe did. Europe was constantly fighting Christian against Christian for thousands of years until it was enough and until it said, no, religion is not going to be the basis of the distinction between Protestant, Catholic, and Jew. That evolution needs to come. It is being retarded by, by, the, uh, by the secular constructs of reinforcing this war on all sides. They cannot conquer phenomena like ISIS until those Sunni regimes evolve. I think Jordan would love to. I know that Morocco would love to. I think that Tunisia, it's on its way, but they're all highly vulnerable as long as ISIS and other groups. Turkey is an evolved Sunni society. Turkey, Turkey has gone backwards. <laughs> it was evolving, but this man made a deal with the devil when he brought ISIS into Turkey. So is, is, is ISIS more of a threat to Saudi Arabia than Iran or Turkey? Monica, what do you think? I think it's, I think, Mark, you know, I think it's a threat to all of them for different reasons. I mean, the other group you haven't talked about is it, relating to Turkey is the Kurds, yes. uh, who are actually the most effective fighters against ISIS. And you're but, talking about at least three different kinds of Kurds. That's the Syrian right. Kurds, the, the Kurds in Kurdistan, the Kurds in Turkey. And then there's Kurds in Iran. Mm -hmm. And one of the big questions, and so what you're seeing playing out right now uh, at least in the last 18 months, is global politics writ large. It's a microcosm mm -hmm. where you've got the Russians and the Iranians poised on one side backing the Assad regime. And then you have the United States, which was somewhat allied with Turkey, but now there's problems because the United States is now backing Kurds. And Turkey's nervous about that because it does not want an independent Kurdistan in its region. 
Um, and, uh, and then you've got the Gulfies, you know, Qatar, Bahrain, and the Saudis, uh, quite nervous because they don't want these Wahhabis, the Salafists, mm -hmm. coming home. Uh, and then Tunisia, you talked about Tunisia. Tunisia has 6,000 fighters who have gone, and it's an incredibly fragile democracy. It may be one of the few bright spots out of the Arab Spring, uh, but they're nervous about these Arab fighters, uh, these, these ISIS fighters coming home. So, so Mark, it's a very complicated mix, and you have the, the sectarian divides playing out, the Shia crescent, so Iran is quite concerned. It wants to be able to maintain control in through Lebanon, and so they're helping sort of fight with Russia uh, and keep um, uh, Assad in power, who is an Alawi, which is considered by some to be part of the Shia sect, um, um, but others deny it. They think they're infidels. Uh, so they're helping because Iran wants to maintain control and power through Hezbollah into Lebanon and then into Israel. And then you have uh, the United States concerned that Russia has too much control and, and, and influence in the region uh, and also wants to support the Kurds. But the question for the Kurds that I think they're going to have to ask is, does the United States have the commitment, the interest, and the staying power? Historically, in the last two, three decades, it's shown that it hasn't. It has these allies, it supports them, and then it abandons them. And right now, the Kurds seem to love Americans. Well, when because, I was in Kurdistan, they yeah. were delighted. They're the, only, the only people in the region seem generally still to like Americans. Because we're helping <laughs> to defeat ISIS yeah. uh, in Raqqa, which is the mm. capital of the cal caliphate, and it looks like that's going to succeed. They're moving in. And the YPG um, and, is very uh, important, the Kurdish uh, troops coming mm -hmm. in from the north. Yeah, but the mm -hmm. question is, is what is the end game? And the mm -hmm. United States, as a people, as a government, we have not answered that. Mm -hmm. What is our commitment to this region? And given the complexity, and, uh, and in particular our, our current system of government, where we're still trying to come to terms with what is happening, what is the foreign policy push, what are our national interests, uh, we don't know where this is going to be headed, even if we do get in and sort of uh, reconquer Raqqa from ISIS. There's an, another way to frame the existential threat here is that for quite a long time, I would argue going well back at least 100 years, the choice is between a cosmopolitan view of organizing the structures of the world versus an ethnic and racial or, re, or tribalistic approach to that. Uh, and, and what you've seen from, from Germany 1930 on to Sarajevo and the tragedy of Sarajevo in the 1990s was the, the, the struggle between the cosmopolitan way of structuring reality based on democratic inclusivity or even constitutional monarchy versus my tribe versus your tribe. And the Middle East as a region is going through that great struggle as well. My, my friends from Damascus, they were Alawite, they were Sunni, they were Shia, they were secular and religious men and women together. And they were the greatest enemy of the tribalists and extremists, whether those tribalists and extremists were Alawite or whether they were fundamentalist religious or whether they were Sunni. There are people in the region who hated them for being cosmopolitan. And it's the same thing with the Baghdadis that I know. So we also have to ask a question of what are we supporting here exactly? What are we looking to create? And who are we supporting? We cannot say that we're all for democracy and human rights and, for, and support the worst tribalist regimes in the region. We, we just can't. It's, it, we, we need to get off of oil and be able to have a rational, fair approach to supporting moderates and pluralists and cosmopolitans. Some of them will be secular. Some of them will be religious. Those people exist, but nobody is supporting them at this point in time. 
Well, for all the reasons that you guys have just given, there is at least a, a several uh, people in the recent uh, primary uh, campaign, presidential campaign, who said the U.S. should simply get out of it. We should get out of the fight. Uh, that uh, let those let them deal with their own problems. This is a situation that the U.S. is going to be damned regardless of what position it takes. Uh, it's a mess. It's a morass. There's no real right answer. There's no real right side. We should simply stay out of it. You heard that from Ron Paul. To some extent, Bernie Sanders was saying something not quite that strong, but there was a sentiment that we should, we've meddled enough in the Middle East. At this point, we should simply stay out of it. It's disingenuous. I mean, because uh, oh, you, you talk first, then I'll talk. Yeah, no, I mean, what I'd say is that's just too black and white. Mm -hmm. I do think that we've overused military force. Uh, diplomacy. I mean, we do need better diplomacy. And actually, this is a criminal and an intelligence problem. And so sort of reshifting our focus away from always the use of force. You know, there's a new doctrine that we actually used in Libya called responsibility to protect. Uh, why did we have to actually, it, it, and, and people think that you have to use military force, but actually there are other mechanisms, other ways of influencing states' politics. And so we don't have to disengage from the Middle East, but I agree, here is where I agree with Mark, but think differently and more smartly about how to engage. This is an intelligence problem, it's a criminal problem, follow the money. Right? They're getting funding from the Gulf states. Follow it. Figure out a way internationally in terms of banking to, to dry up that supply. Be more effective with arms embargoes and sanctions. Uh, so there's different ways to do it, but we tend, particularly in the United States, we like technical fixes. We always have. If there's a problem, we create some sort of technical fix, a new weapon system uh, uh, to go after it. Uh, and, and in the meantime, you know, we're, we're now increased our defense budget by 10%. It's already the largest defense budget in the world. Nobody can come near us, including the next five states combined, uh, and we're, we're, we're defunding the State Department again. Mm -hmm. And who do we have as our Secretary of State? A former CEO of an oil you know, uh, company. And so we really want to be thinking about if we don't want to use force, because force is not working. It's not. Uh, and we don't have the staying power. We don't want our troops to die. It's awfully expensive. Those 49 missiles that we shot off, you know, they're one to one and a half million dollars a piece. Can you imagine how many students we could have educated in this auditorium today, right? Mm. 60 million, you know, something dollars. So, so it's really, I guess, thinking through alternatives, not disengaging, but alternative ways. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.